Well, good morning, guys. It is great to see you guys here this morning. For all of you parents that are with us this morning, let me extend to you guys a special welcome. And let me just say it is an incredible privilege for us as a church and as a college ministry to get to shepherd, to lead, and to pour into your student. And so we are thrilled to have you guys here this morning. For uh, you guys who may be visiting us for the first time, I will tell you guys, for Grace Bible Church, college ministry is not just one of the ministries of our church. It is pretty much one of our most uh, strategic focuses of what we're about, what we delight in. And so it is an incredible privilege for us to get to spend been weeks in uh, with your students a few years as well while they're here. And so let us just say to you, thank you uh, for letting us get to walk with them, letting us get to be a part of their lives. It is an incredible privilege for us. I will tell you guys, I think I have one of the greatest jobs that is there that is out there to be had. And so my name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus. And we're just excited to have you guys uh, as parents here this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27 this morning as we continue our year-long series through this book, Acts chapter 27. Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 all the way to uh, the end of the chapter this morning. Uh, I want to pick up in verses 9 uh, and on uh, as we kind of jump in this morning, beginning in chapter 27, verse 9. Luke writes this for us. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our own lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. And if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Uroquilo, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clada, we were scarcely able to keep the ship's boat under control. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you this morning that your love is extravagant, that your love is rich. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who would give his life on our behalf so that we could know you and walk with you. And Father, I pray this morning, even as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are. In the midst of the storms that we find ourselves in, even this morning, Lord, I pray that you would provide us orientation, that you provide us our bearings, that you would help us to realize that you see, that you love us, and that you are working even in the midst of storms in our lives. Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your written word, Lord. I pray that even as we open it, Lord, I pray that you would move in our lives. I pray that you allow us to see as you see, and that you'd walk with us as you see fit this morning, Lord. We love you and we thank you. We ask that you'd be present in our time this morning, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, as we walk you guys through this passage this morning, I was thinking of uh, Mickey Arison, who some of you guys may know is the owner of the Miami Heat. And one would think that for Mickey Arison, his life is on top of the world right now, right? Uh, He has a finals trophy from last year, 2012, from 2006 as well with the Miami Heat. He has the NBA's best player and the NBA's best team. Life would seem on the outset to be good. But what you don't realize about Mickey Arison is that he's also the CEO of Carnival Cruise Lines, and the spring has not been very kind to Carnival, all right? Some of you guys might have been tracing the story that occurred in February of the Carnival Triumph that was in the Gulf of Mexico when a fire broke out, and all of a sudden this uh, cruise line became stranded at the open sea for five days, all right? 
the stories and the interviews and the uh, video that would be captured and the photos of the captured of that cruise line made it seem like some kind of homeless shelter lost at sea, all right? People began to live on the actual deck so they could have open wind because power had pretty much been shut down on the cruise ship. Sewage began to back up into the showers and out of the toilets. It was just awful, all right? It was like something from Lord of the Flies, just primitive at best. Uh, and as stories would be told, even some, some people would begin to say that they survived the red bag special of the Carnival Triumph because the toilets were shut down such that some were beginning to use bio, uh, red biohazard waste bags as makeshift toilets, all right? Awful scenario, all right? The kind of press that has come at Carnival this spring has just been awful. A month after this, Carnival would have another incident that would occur just a month later in which a generator would go out on one of its cruises and the passengers of that cruise would be stranded in St. Martin. Oh, those poor passengers, right? Uh, and so the, the uh, cameras would come in, interviewers would come in, and they would just kind of wax eloquently about how tough their situation was. And if there's one lawsuit that comes out of that, it's ridiculous because, because being stranded in San Martin isn't that bad, right? And yet what I was thinking of as I was looking at this passage this morning is we're going to see in our story this morning in Acts 27, a cruise in a sense that will start out at sea. In verses 1 and 8 of this cruise at sea, it will go incredibly well, but something will go awfully awry about in the middle part of our chapter. And a storm is going to break out that will threaten not just vacations, all right, but will threaten the very plan of God. If you guys were with me last week, we looked at the fact that as we've been walking through the book of Acts, God told Paul, as he stood trial, four chapters of trial, four chapters of standing before judges for his faith in Jesus Christ. We saw that God had promised Paul that he would deliver Paul all the way to Rome and which he would be able to stand before Caesar himself and declare to Caesar and therefore to the Roman world and the rest of the world his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet here we're going to find him in Acts chapter 27 and we're going to find him shipwrecked, lost at sea in a storm unlike any storm that had hit through the book of Acts. And it would have been natural for Paul to begin to wonder, where was God in the midst of the storm? Paul was pretty confident that God had a great plan for him. And we watched Paul walk with incredible poise through four chapters as he stood before one judge after another judge after another judge, not just over days, but over weeks, months, and even years. And now here we are, he's finally on his way to Rome, finally on his way, headed to go find and get in front of Caesar. And a storm breaks out. And the question will be for Paul, how is he going to respond? Will he trust that God is still in control even in the storm of his life? Or will he begin to doubt whether God can do what he's he's desired and what he's communicated that he's planning to do? I think Acts chapter 27 is a great illustration for us as to where God is in the good times and where God is in the rough times. I think really as we look at this storm that will break out, it's going to threaten sailors, saints, and ships. It's a giant storm that will really rock the very foundation of their lives and what they believed about God. And I think for us, it comes at a great time because I've always thought that Parents Weekend is a little bit like a cruise ship experience for a weekend, right? Mom and dad come in, they pay for your meals, it's extravagant, you go to Madden's, you go to the nice places, right? Because you can't afford that, but mom and dad are here and they can afford everything, right? Uh, and then maybe if it really goes well, they walk out, they take off, they slip a little cash in your back pocket so you're set up for the next month, right? And then maybe see a spring football game. It's a great time, right? But every single one of us knows a storm is about to brew in just a few weeks and many of you guys are already feeling it right now. It's a storm called finals, right? When you lose all bearings, right? You lose all sleep. All of life just completely explodes on you, right? And so this is the good time, right? The storm is coming. And what I love about Acts 27 is that it's going to get sense for us as to where God is in the good times and where is God in the rough times. Particularly what we're going to see as we kind of walk through this story this morning is that there is an illusion that comes in the good times and there is an instruction that comes in the storm. 
And the good times are in the calm, so to speak. There's an illusion that we often buy into. And then often when we have to get to the storm, the storm will instruct us about the illusion that maybe we never saw appropriately. That's where we're going to head this morning. And really as the passage opens up, beginning in verse 1, it really has all the makings of a nice cruise experience. Seriously, look at verse 1. When it was decided that we would sell for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship, which is about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus and a Macedonian of of Thessalonica. It's interesting, as verses 1 and 2 open up, you get a sense that as Paul is on this ship, he's got a great sense of company, right? Uh, He's got a traveling companion that we've seen throughout the book of Acts as well. And also, the narrator Luke referred to this section as he says that we set sail. And so Luke is actually putting himself in the story. So it seems that Paul is traveling both with Luke and this other guy named Aristarchus. And so he's got great company. He's not alone in this story. It's not just that he's got great company, but he's got incredible courtesy. All right? look, look at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration and he allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. And this may not be virgin daiquiris on the deck of a cruise ship, all right? but for a prisoner who's being transported, this is pretty darn good, right? These are the good times for Paul. He's no longer under the threat of trial. He's being transported to Caesar where he knows that God is going to bring about a fulfillment of his purposes and life is good, right? He's got great company. He's got great courtesy. He's being treated great. And in fact, he's got incredibly calm waters as well. Notice as Luke will narrate really their passage. Verse four, from there we put out to sea and we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia uh, and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty we arrived off of Sinidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off of Salmon. And with difficulty selling past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Verse 8 ends with them in a place called Fair Havens, which to me sounds like a great Cayman-like excursion, all right? Life is good, all right? Great company, great calm waters. The, the plan, the passage is going according to plan. Everything seems great. But even in verses 7 and 8, you get a little clue that trouble is on the horizon, that clouds are coming, because he says in 7 that we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty arrived, all right? All of a sudden, the water is getting a little choppier. Verse 8, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens. And so they land in a wonderful place, but the waters are getting choppier. The journey is getting a little more difficult. Clouds, so to speak, figuratively, are on the horizon. I think verses 1 and 8 are really interesting here because there's a couple things I notice as you kind of walk through the storyline. One is, why does Luke spend eight verses with so much detail, right? This is incredibly detailed. Every little tiny detail about their port, their journey, transfer of ships. Why are we getting all of this information? What is Luke trying to do for us? I I think you get a sense as you kind of walk through it. It's almost as if these sailors are incredibly skilled, incredibly diligent, incredibly wise, which is why the journey is going so well. Uh, In fact, not only that, but I think as you look at the storyline, the question also is, where is God, right? It's not just that the narrative is incredibly detailed, but in the midst of that incredible detail, God is nowhere to be seen or heard. God doesn't seem present at all. In fact, as we walk through this story this morning throughout the chapter 27, we don't find a character speaking of God, referencing God, or God himself being attributed with any action or word until verse 23. We're going to be more than halfway through the chapter before God, so to speak, shows up on the scene. Why is that? What's the point? I think one of the things that Luke is trying to set up for us, and you have to, it's subtle, you have to catch it, but in verses 1 and 8, as we look at it really in the sense of the good times, 
the calm times. I think Luke is trying to set us up to realize that there's an illusion that comes with the calm times. And here it is. The illusion that comes with the calm times is that we are in control and nothing could be further from the truth. But when things go according to plan, when the journey is smooth, when it's like a cruise-like experience, it's really easy to begin to think that we are responsible, that the diligence, the preparation, the education, the training of the sailors was responsible for their smooth journey, right? It's really easy to begin to move that direction. And yet nothing could be farther from the truth because God is in control of the good times and he's in control of the bad times. And one of the things that's going to happen here is I think Paul is going to set us up to see that illusion. And it really reminds me in many ways of riding roller coasters. I don't know if any of you guys are roller coaster fans, all right? I'll tell you guys, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm deathly afraid of roller coasters still, all right? Uh, it was sixth grade, my first roller coaster experience. I was at Dallas at Six Flags where I grew up. Not at Six Flags, but at Dallas, all right? Uh, and my first experience was at Six Flags, and it was one of those roller coasters that went, does it a couple loops a couple times, remember? And by the time I actually got off that thing, I was... First of all, crying my eyes out, all right? Second of all, puking my guts out, all right? It was just a completely awful experience that I really have not yet bounced back from in my mid-30s, all right? So I am now going to be the parent that will avoid amusement parks with all of my life, right? I will, I will watch the babies if I have to, just so I don't have to go up with the kids on the roller coaster because I want no part of it, all right? In fact, I still to this day cannot imagine why anyone in their right mind spends money to jump on a roller coaster so that your life is in jeopardy. It makes no sense whatsoever to me, all right? Use your money and get counseling because you need help, people, all right? <laughs> Now, here's the deal for me. As I think about roller coasters, I think no matter whether you love them or not, though, there's a common experience that we all have. You have those free fall moments where you just jump off a cliff, and what do you do with your hands? Some of you are crazy, and you do this, right? The great majority of us do what? We grab hold of anything we can, right? So we grab hold of the rail. We grab hold of the seatbelt. We grab hold of our friend. We grab hold of the girl's hair that's in front of us. It does not matter. We've got to hold, grab hold of something, right? So we grab hold of something as tight as we can. We white knuckle. Your, your bones are about to break through your skin. You're just holding on so tight, right? You go through the big great dip, and then you come out of it, and there's five to ten seconds of serenity and calm, right? I live for those moments. <laughs> and what do you do with your hands? Anyone like this? By and large, probably not. What are you still doing? You are still holding on as tight as you can, right? Your hands haven't really let go because what's coming around the corner? Another death-defying dip, right? Because you know what you came out of and you know where you are, but you know where you're headed next, which is just life unrooted whatsoever, right? I mean, you're just holding on with all you have. And one of the things I love about Six Flags and one of the things I love about roller coasters is that what is the point of holding on tight? It's an illusion, right? If you just let go, what happens? Nothing, right? Are you going to fall out? No. So why are you holding on tight? It makes no sense whatsoever, but it's human instinct, Right? Because if you let go, are you going to fall out? No. Because there's something larger that holds you in that, that's designed it and that's moving your experience along. And holding on is about an illusion because it does nothing. I think in the same way, in the midst of the good times for you and I, we hold on tight. We press forward because we're so concerned with what's coming around the corner that we cannot appreciate the good times as they are. And we begin to fall into the illusion that we think that we are in control because we're holding on tight, so to speak, in the midst of our life, even in the good times. It's fascinating. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of the Discipline, says this about churches, about contemporary society today. He says this, that the carefree spirit of joyous festivity is absent in contemporary society. Apathy, even melancholy, dominates the times. The modern man has been pressed so hard toward work and rational calculation, he has all but forgotten the joy of ecstatic celebration. It's interesting to me, in the midst of the calm here in Acts 27, that Paul and Luke, even as he narrates it, we don't see God anywhere. 
He's not attributed any action. He's not attributed any words. But what we see over and over again is the great effort, the great decision-making processes, the great steps that the men were taking to control their situation. And so when it was smooth, by nature, one would begin to think that it's because of me. <laughs> right? And for many of us, some of us have been so shaken by the dips of our lives and by the difficulties of our lives that even in the good times, we cannot celebrate because we're so worried what's coming around the corner. Right? And one of the things I want to challenge you guys to this morning, this sounds weird to have to challenge you to it, but is that in the midst of the good times, celebrate like crazy. In the midst of the good times, don't be so concerned with what's around the corner, but take the moment and praise the Lord for what has been in front of you and what you are being able to experience. I think so often we feel like we cannot do that. We don't feel the freedom to do that. And I want to say take complete freedom and celebrate to the hilt with all that you have. I love the psalmist. They will sing, they will dance, they will scream. Even God will command the nation of Israel together three times throughout the Old Testament every year for the express purpose of a party. (laughs) A party. A great, incredible celebration so that they can trace the handiwork of God in their lives. So they can turn over the illusion in their lives that they think that they are in control because nothing could be further from the truth, even in the good times. Because if you can trace for yourself, even in the good times, where the hand of God is, then you're able to also trace the hand of God even in the difficult times. If you cannot see him and trace his hand in the good times, then it's going to be impossible for you to see him and to trace his hand even in the difficult times. Because notice how fast we go from calm to storm in our passage. Look with me, if you will, back in verse 9. Notice how fast the transition happens. Verse, uh, verse 9, when a considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to the men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss. Not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our own lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. It's interesting, even as you walk through the story, one of the things I think you're going to begin to realize is that there's an instruction that comes in the storm. And the first thing that Paul is going to be realized, he's the first one, I think, to really receive the instruction is that he is not in control. Paul is going to be outvoted on this discussion, right? They're going to be having kind of a scenario and discussion going on as to what they should do next. Paul says, hey, here's what I think we're going to do. Let me provide you great wisdom, understanding. And you know what happens? He's completely outvoted. (laughs) He loses to the majority and he learns he does not control his circumstances in any way, shape or form, even with a bunch of sailors and crazy lunatics who are on board with him, all right? He does not control his circumstances. For many of us guys, if you were anything like me, as you thought about dating in college, we would spend, I would spend weeks and weeks debating whether I should ask out a girl, right? Uh, my buddies and I would go back and forth as to whether we should ask out a girl, and the assumption always was that she'd say yes, right? Why, why wouldn't she say yes, right? And then you jump out and you realize, no, the answer is not yes, and no, I don't control anything, right? Uh, I don't have any cards in my hands when it comes to dating. As a guy, you think you can initiate the action, but really the girl holds all the cards in some levels, right? Because she determines whether anything gets off the first date, right? And so in many ways, guys realize really quickly, we don't control any cards in dating. And I think for Paul, he's going to realize very quickly, he doesn't control any cards here in the midst of this ship experience. He is not in control. He's going to lose the majority that will outvote him. And therefore, the ship, its sailors, its direction, and its plan is not just out of his control, but it's contrary to what he thinks he thinks is best. It's not just Paul who's going to learn quickly, but even the sailors themselves are going to misread the winds. Notice verse 13. 
When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and they began sailing along at creek close in shore. So a south wind breaks up. If I could show you a map, you could see that this is right where along the way that they want to go. So they sense the wind moving. They think it's moving in the trajectory and the direction that they want for their plan. But notice how quickly the winds change. Verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called a Uroquila. Why are all the great storms named something, right? Uh, ultimately, this really just means a great northeasterner wind that comes off of the island, and all of a sudden the wind that was blowing south begins to blow northeast, completely contrary to the direction that they were needing and wanting to go. And all of a sudden, the sailors begin to misread the winds, and not only do they misread the winds, but they lose complete control whatsoever. Notice the way the story unfolds, verse 15, and when the ship was caught in it, they could not face the wind, and they gave way to it, and they let themselves be driven along. <laughs> They couldn't resist where the wind was moving. It was that strong. And all of a sudden, they begin to be controlled by the wind, and the ship begins to move in a whole different direction. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, we were scarcely able to keep the ship's boat under control. There's that word, control. The sailors were beginning to realize the same thing Paul had realized. They were not in control. The wind was in control. In fact, notice all the measures. Notice all the steps they will take to so as to get control back. Notice what they do, verse 17. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtris, they let down the sea anchor. And in this way, they let themselves be driven along. They are exhausting all options that they have so they can gain control back. Verse 18, the next day they were being violently tossed, storm-tossed, and they began to jettison the cargo. They are just being thrown around by the winds that are there on the sea, and they have no control whatsoever. They lose control, they lose direction, and eventually the sea itself begins to just toss them around. And if you've ever been just physically controlled, you know how utterly helpless feeling that is, right? They cannot control, physically speaking, anywhere they go now. The sea and the wind is just controlling them completely. In junior high, I had a friend of mine that was named Blaine Murphy, all right? He was a college kid in a junior high kid's body, all right? When he would get to 16, he would have a, a truck that was all uh, elevated, ramped up, that could literally drive over and park over my Honda, all right? Huge kid, all right? Later on with a huge truck, all right? But one day in junior high, he took this kid named Flint. God bless him, all right? But he took Flint, and he took him and dangled him upside down, holding him by his feet. And he made the kid, bless his little heart, he made the kid kiss a cat mat, all right? I don't know if any of you guys know what a cat mat is, but these residents had, these homeowners had this little mat in front of a room they did not want a cat to go into. And so if the cat stepped on the mat, this is a little electric shock, all right? So Blaine takes Flint. God bless Flint, all right? Still pray for him today. Uh, but he makes Flint kiss the cat Matt. Flint is just dangling in the air. He has absolutely no control over his circumstances, right? He's just suspended physically in the air and he's having to kiss an electrocutable cat mat. Not a good day for Flint. Also not a good day for Blaine. Hopefully he's grown from that. But here was the deal. I think if you've ever been in a situation where you are physically dominated, you know how absolutely out of control things are. Here they are in a boat and they're being just storm tossed and they have absolutely no control over their circumstances and yet they are trying everything they can to get control back. Notice what happens even in verse, uh, verse 20. says, Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was sailing us. From then all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Sailors misread the winds. The winds pick up and things are getting further and further and further out of control. But as they get further and further out of control, the sailors are doing everything they can to maintain control so that their ship is not just completely storm-tossed and out of control. But eventually, as they exhaust all of their options, they begin to realize that they are absolutely out of control. There's nothing they can do. They've tried everything. 
And one of the things that's really interesting is I think God often lets us exhaust all of our options before we're ready to see and understand that we have no control. (laughs) Sometimes we have to go through plan A, B, C, all the way to plan Z before we are ready to really hear and understand (laughs) that God is in control. He's in control in the good times and in the bad times. And yet sometimes we're not ready to see it. We're not ready to understand that and grasp that until we've exhausted all options. And that's really where the sailors are. Notice verse 21. Notice what happens. Now, when they had gone a long time without food, so now they've not seen star or suns for days. Now they've not eaten for days. Then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Right? Giant, I told you so. Right? That's loving. That's really, really helpful, Paul. Appreciate that. But what is Paul doing? He's stepping in now in the moment where they're finally ready to hear and understand the instruction of the storm. They've not been ready until they've exhausted all their options. And now that they've exhausted all their options, finally Paul steps in to say that God is in control. This is the instruction of the storm that you have to grasp, especially if even in the calm and the good times, you've not realized the illusion that comes in the calm. When things are going going according to plan, you are not in control. And sometimes you do not realize that until the storm comes in and knocks you off your rump. And you begin to realize, (laughs) that wasn't because of me. (laughs) There's something larger that's in control of my life, that's steering the ship of my life, so that I see that God is in control. And sometimes we have to exhaust all of our options. And that's really where Paul takes the sailors. And notice finally, when they're ready to hear, he's not just rubbing it in their face, but he's realizing that they're finally now ready to hear. Notice what he says in verse 22. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe that God will turn out exactly as I have been told. So an angel shows up here in the midst of the storm to remind Paul and to strengthen for Paul his confidence of what he was told back in chapter 23, that God surely would deliver him to Rome. Even Paul needs that reminder. Even Paul needed that help to realize, yeah, this is not being completely undoing all of the very work and plan of God, but God is moving things just as he sees fit. He sees and he is in control. Even in the storm, the angel says, trust me. I'm in control, and this is moving you exactly where I want you to go. In fact, notice what he says in verse 26, which actually makes this sense of control even more stunning. He says in 26, but we must run aground on a certain island. (laughs) That's awesome, God. Thank you, right? Uh, Not just this island that we passed two weeks ago, but the island that's coming up that we may not reach for another two weeks, right? God is in control to the very island that they will land and they will shipwreck on. God is in that level of control, all right? Back, in fact, though, God's timetable, though, often isn't what we want. Verse 27, and when the 14th night came, Paul gives them this encouragement, do not lose hope. Two weeks go by, two weeks. They're lost at sea, and then finally they land, and finally they find land. Verse 27, when the 14th night came, we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. Man. They've not seen sun and stars for days. They've not eaten for days. And and Paul comes and says to the sailors, don't lose courage. God is working this out and is in complete control of our circumstances until we land on a certain piece of land. (laughs) Two weeks go by (laughs) in which they're still in this predicament and they're beginning to wonder again afresh as to what God is doing. And And many times I think for us in the midst of the storms that we find ourselves in, it's so hard to trust the Lord. It's so hard to think that he sees, so hard to think that he loves us, that he cares enough in the midst of what we're walking through. 
And in the midst of the timetable that is so often not what we would expect, not at all the way that we would write the story, it becomes harder and harder to trust God in the midst of those circumstances, no matter how confident we are of where he's moving things to. For the apostle Paul, God had promised him that I will deliver you to Rome because God wanted the gospel, the message of good news to reach Rome, to reach Caesar, so we could go out to the ends of the world from there. The message that God had given his only son, Jesus Christ, who had taken on human flesh and who had come here and lived amongst uh, humankind and lived perfectly as God had called him to. And yet, despite his perfection, despite his moral purity, he would be crucified on a cross, taking on the very punishment that was all of humanity's. Taking the punishment that should have been ours so that we would not have to die, and Jesus stood in our place so that we could have life. Eternal life forgiveness comes not on the basis of, of however many good works that we can amass and however many good things we can do, but it comes on the basis of what one has done on our behalf for us, what Jesus has done. That Jesus would stand in our place and take upon himself the penalty of our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. It is that message, it is that gospel that God wanted Paul to be delivered to Rome so that he could proclaim and God had promised him over and over again towards that end. In fact, the very book of Acts is all about that message going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. A day is going to come in which God will assemble men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around his throne to worship him for all of eternity. And despite circumstances, despite history, despite nature, God will sovereignly bring about that purpose to no end. There's no way it can be overturned. God is moving all of human history to that climax. And so many times it's so hard for us to see in the midst of the particulars of our life, in the midst of the particular situations of of our own individual lives, what God is doing. And it's so hard to see. And yet if he can move the very particulars of Paul's life to an ultimate end goal that he saw as good and worthwhile, then surely he's doing the same for us. It's so hard to think that God sees sometimes. It's so hard to think that God is in control of those circumstances that seem out of control. And yet if he was in control of this storm and control of Paul's life, then surely he's in control of ours as well. It's fascinating, even as you end this story, really verses 27 all the way to 44 really are are further details as to how God works that out. But eventually the end of our passage in verse 44, the second half, it says, and so it happened, yada, 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 (laughs) that they were brought safely to the land. God works it out. He delivers them safely. God comes through on his promises. I was thinking for us, I was thinking through uh, stories in our lives. I don't know where you are this morning, whether you are in the midst of one of those storms, where you are doing everything you can to maintain control again. (laughs) Maybe it's that you're not sure when you will graduate. Maybe it's a class that is out of control. Maybe it's a relationship that you want to be one thing, but it's just not. And you are doing everything you can to grab control of a situation that you honestly cannot control. I'm curious this morning for you, are you... Are you out of options yet? <laughs> Have you exhausted plans A, B, C, D? Are you still working with plans M and N? In the midst of those particulars, have you reached a place where you realize, you know what, I can't control this. And I need to just hand this off to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to trust you. Grant me eyes to see what you may be wanting to do and grant me the patience to wait on you to bring that to fulfillment and to where you're wanting to move it. I was struck even this week of a story that broke out this past uh, weekend, even of Kobe Bryant and any of you guys sports fans. Uh, and when she tore his Achilles in a game, and then at Saturday morning at about 3.30, he went on Facebook, which is a great place to really vent your soul, right? Not a good place ever to comment anything about relationships or life at 3.30, all right? But Kobe goes on, and I, I think Kobe's comments are incredibly telling, and I think incredibly relevant in the midst of a storm that has broken out in his life. An Achilles that has been torn, a career that now could be in jeopardy, as he's wondering what's going on. In fact, as he looks back at his, the calm of his life and as he looks forward to the storm of his life, I really want you guys to listen to his words. 
So I want you guys to answer really two questions as you listen to what Kobe's going to say. First is this, has Kobe realized the illusion that comes in the good times? And second is this, has he yet to heed the instruction that comes in the storm? In the midst of the calm, has he learned that God is in control? And in the midst of the storm, has he yet realized that God is in control? Listen to what he says. It's fascinating. He says, 3.30 in the morning on Saturday, he says, all of the training and the sacrifice that he did just flew out the window with one step that I've done millions of times. Millions of times. The frustration is unbearable. The anger is rage. Why the heck did this happen? I doctored that for you. Uh, Makes no sense. Now I'm supposed to come back from this and be the same player or better at 35. How in the world am I supposed to do that? I have no clue. Do I have the consistent will to overcome this thing? Maybe I should just break out the rocking chair and reminisce on the career that was. Maybe this is how my book ends. Maybe Father Time has defeated me. And then again, maybe not. It's 3.30 a.m. My foot feels like dead weight. My head is spinning from the pain meds and I'm wide awake. Forgive my venting, but after all the venting, a real perspective sets in. There are far greater issues and challenges in the world than a torn Achilles. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Find the silver lining and get to work with the same belief, the same drive, the same conviction as ever. One day, the beginning of a new career will commence, and today is not that day. I'll give it to Kobe. He's got incredible resolve, incredible self-will, incredible determination. But because of that, I don't think he's realized the illusion that comes in the calm. It's not because of him. He's not in control. And when the storm is broken out, he's not ready to, to heed and to learn the instruction that comes with the storm that is, you are not in control. And so he bears up, he grits his teeth, and he pushes forward to determine his future and determine his path because he's failed to realize that he's not in control. And he will not realize that until he's exhausted all of his options. And maybe you're in that same spot. In the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a turn or a free fall dip that you never expected or planned on, and you're disoriented and you're trying to find your bearings, and maybe you are still trying to find control. In the midst of all the things that you may try, I will assure you, you cannot determine and gain control because you are not in control. There is one who is larger and bigger than you, who loves you, who cares for you, who is in control. In the midst of the storms, it's so hard to see that. In the midst of the storm that was Jesus Christ's crucifixion, it would have been impossible to see that God was in control. But three days later, when Jesus Christ crucified would be resurrected, then we realize, no, he is in control. And yet experience in its initial timetable is so difficult to perceive, so difficult to interpret rightly. But wait on the resurrection, wait on the very hand of God to come through, and it may be on a different timetable. It may not be an angelic vision that Paul got. It may not be a resurrection scene that the apostles got three days after the crucifixion. But trust God that he's moving human history. He's moving your story and your life to where he has a goal intended and he's doing something intentionally with a purpose. It is not random. He is in control and he's good and he's moving your life where you would have it to be. He has a purpose for it. A purpose you may not see today, but a purpose you may see down the road at some point. I want to flip the story from Kobe to another story that was told uh, of one night a house caught fire and a young boy was forced to flee the roof. The father stood on the ground below with outstretched arms and he was calling to his son, jump, I'll catch you. He knew the boy had to jump to save his life and all the boy could see, however, was flame, smoke, and blackness. And as can be imagined, he was afraid to leave the roof and his father kept yelling, jump, I will catch you. But the boy protested, daddy, I can't see you. Father replied, but I can see you and that's all that matters. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what it is you guys are walking through, but I want to assure you there's a God who sees There's a God who loves you. There's a God who's intimately involved with human history and with your life, and he's moving things to a place that he intends for a purpose that you may not see, and he sees. 
And so trust him in the midst of the calm that he's in control, in the midst of the storm that he's in control. What I want to do for us this morning as we kind of wrap up and as we close is that I want to give you guys a time to respond in worship. I'm going to give you guys a time to really come before the Lord and take some time and really just meditate and process and go, hey, Lord, where is it that you have me? Maybe you are in the midst of one of those calm times and I want to challenge you to celebrate and to really begin to take some time, even this afternoon, to trace those calm times as to where you see the hand of God. In the midst of the blessings that you're walking in, where is it that you see God's hand? How is it you can praise him this morning, this afternoon, for where you are? In the midst of the storm, let me challenge you that God can see that he is in control, that he loves you, and that he's moving your story to a place that he intends and that he's not lost sight, that he's not lost bearing of you and where you are, but he sees and he just wants you to trust him and to hang with him.